God, we thank you for your eternal word. Uh, We cherish it. We ask you to change us this morning uh, from the inside out with your eternal word that you preserve for us. God, we know that your word is living and active and effective, and we just ask that it cut straight to our hearts, that it reveal more of you to us as was your intention in leaving it for us and that we worship you even more at the end of this day. Help us to call others to do the same in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may be wondering why bring up Pentecost and then start all the way back in Genesis. And it's funny because you may have never thought about it this way, but Pentecost is really part of a longer narrative in the scriptures. And the whole unbroken story of the Bible has this scattering and gathering from the Father. If you'll put yourself in the shoes of original readers, or if you can pretend with me for a minute that you've never read the Bible before, to this point, we've had perfection in the garden and then the fall. They're kicked out. Then you have the first murder. So things just keep getting worse. It spirals out of control from Cain and Abel until we have the flood story. And at each one of these points, we hear God telling them, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. But then even after the flood, things start to get out of control again, and this is where we find ourselves here. We're going to look at three scenes today. We're going to look at this initial scattering, and then we're going to look forward to the day of Pentecost, and then we're going to also look forward to a day that's soon coming in Revelation. And all three of these scenes have some, a few similarities. Uh, the most obvious is that they involve multiple languages, a plurality of languages. Another is that they all take place in a high place, like a, to- a tower, the heavenly throne, an upper room. But those are just kind of superficial similarities. We want to dig deeper into the story and see what God is up to, what he's revealing, not just about humanity, but about himself. There's a lot more to the story than just, you know, a bizarre miracle. And it is really cool. It's a cool story. In fact, I brought this, the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you haven't read it. It's really good, and I'm going to leave it somewhere, probably back there, so that, not leave it for good, (laughs) but so that you can read the account of the Tower of Babel, and it'll probably take you four or five minutes, if that. It's a really good uh, retelling of the story in such a way that it helps connect that story to the story of the whole Bible. I used to love telling this story to my daughters, especially when I first started learning Mandarin because I would get to the part where God confused our languages and start, you know, saying a little bit of Spanish and Chinese, and they would help me create gibberish, <laughs> other languages. But, again, there's, there's a lot more to this than just some fable or some fairy tale. And if you are tempted to think that the story, there's no way it could be true, but I'm, I'm just going to trust the Bible. I'm not going to look into it anymore. There's actually a whole lot of archaeological evidence and linguistic research that prove that all the languages of the world 
all of them can be found coming back to these main branches, these main families. And if you look at Genesis 10, uh, the author of Genesis here is doing something pretty unique. They're giving you the table of nations or a list of nations. And then in chapter 11, it starts out, at one time the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. So what's going on here? Are they different nation states with languages or are they one people? Well, the writer of Hebrew is emphasizing this is the way the world was and this is why it was that way. And then he tells the story. It's a lot like we have in our movies where they show the last scene first and then the whole movie they unwrap the story and they come back around to it. That's what the writer is doing here. It's given us this background so that we can see how it came to be that there were 72 nations. It would be really easy for me to kind of nerd out on the language stuff here. <laughs> Not because of like I'm an expert in linguistics, but because God's been revealing to me stuff in my studies. In fact, I think we can kind of get into, uh, you know, leave, leave behind the kind of flannel graph images that we have of the Tower of Babel, and even this one, even though it's really good, and really get into the, the story of what it must have been like, like maybe even emotionally, if we think about where they had come from. It says they landed in a plain of Shinar, or Shinar. So to, their, to the west, they had mountains. They could make stones. In a plain, you don't have that. So they had found this new technology. They would take the red clay dirt, and they would mix it and let the sun bake it. So this new technology sparked this idea, if we can make this, then we can make a great city. And this tower will we'll have glory not only here on earth, but all the way to heaven. We'll show the world who we are. Now, you might think that sounds a little bit ridiculous, but think about how many technologies have done that same thing to us, that have encouraged that kind of arrogance in us. I didn't think of one recently I saw a commercial for Google, I think it's actually called Google Eyes, the invention. Excuse me. And their motto is subtitles for the world, or to subtitle the world. The idea is you put these glasses on, and in the video they actually show Mandarin-speaking people with other speakers, like English speakers. And it's short, you can YouTube it if you want, but Basically, while this person is speaking another language, I'm looking at you, hearing you, but I'm seeing on the lenses, as if on a screen, my language, what they're saying. So it interprets for me what they're saying. And this is a big undertaking, you know, and you're watching it, and some people are tempted to think, you know, be scared in some ways, and maybe there's some of that, but I was pretty fascinated. I was, you know, in awe of what they had done. But then in the same moment, I started to kind of think how silly it was, how futile. Because, I mean, me having spent, you know, the better part of three years now really learning this language, acquiring the culture and learning idioms that are there, I know that this thing is only going to go about this deep. (laughs) 
you're going to be able to say very few phrases that, that can connect over. But even still, I'm, I'm fascinated. And then I say, yeah, but it'll never really get that far. And this is a funny example because it's kind of wanting to undo what God had done here and dispersing us and separating us into languages. You may not have seen that commercial, and that might have totally bored you out altogether, but what about like your iPhone or smartphone in general? Like, you know, your kids might have bought it for you, or you might have branched out and got your first one. I remember I had a flip phone when we got married, and Hannah was not having that. <laughs> and so she helped bring me into the new century. And as, as I had this phone, I knew it's shiny, it's got all this stuff, you know, available to me. I can talk to it and it'll tell me things. It can tell me where to go. Um, I, you know, all sorts of crazy things. But it keeps popping up all these messages that I don't understand. <laughs> and a confusing tongue or a confusing language, if you will, and I have no idea what to do with it. I think most of us have experienced something like that with technology, right? On one hand, it puffs us up, and then it immediately lets us down. And that's really what the people at the Tower of Babel were experiencing. They were being puffed up, kind of like in, you know, before World War II, there was this industrial revolution, there was this idea of progress. We're fantastic. There will never be war again. We're at peace. We're curing diseases. We, 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 we. And then what happens? World War II. And it shattered that idea. And I think today some of these technologies have pumped us up a little bit. And even the pandemic has been used to show us, oh, yeah, we're just people. So imagine you're there. You're a part of this building project. And one day, you come in for work, and you can't understand anyone. There's 72 nations at the end of this. So you've got to imagine by this time from Noah, from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, like you've got all these names listed, all these generations. There was large sections of people who could not understand each other. Imagine what was going through their minds as they left there having, you know, like been working alongside these people potentially for years, we don't know how long, but working alongside these people and they're leaving, that must have been so confusing to think, I've got these thoughts, these concepts, I know this person deeply and I can't explain to them what I want, what I need. I don't know if you've ever been in a scenario where you were overseas or maybe even here, maybe how about this on a phone call? and there's a language barrier. It's frustrating, isn't it? And, and it's frustrating on, on both ends, when you want something done and you can't get it done, but also when you just want to connect with someone and you just want to have a conversation, let them know you see them, you know them, you appreciate them, and you can't do it. It must have been a really challenging thing for them to have experiences. Not only challenging, but shattering. Remember, they were just up here at the height of humanity. Like, it doesn't get any better than this. And then now, what are we left with? We're, we're literally moving in different directions, which is the exact thing that they feared, that they would be scattered. 
So I hope I've given you a little bit of the taste of the reality of Babel. And there's probably more we could unpack there, but I want to propose to you this morning that the name, the Tower of Babel, is kind of a misnomer. Um, and the reason is not that it's a bad description. They call that place Babel. But we miss out on the other things that they wanted. There's actually a, a wish list here. They want a name, they want a city, and they want a tower. Tower's like the, the cherry on top. It's just part of what they wanted. And the name thing is fame, glory. They wanted to be glorious. Does any of this sound familiar to y'all? Like maybe in the heavens? Maybe one of the angels <laughs> who wanted some of the glory for himself, who wanted to kind of bottle it up and keep it? Or maybe in the garden, the temptation to be like God. Mankind can't get away with this. They can make stones almost out of nothing, you know. They can make this city and stuff, but at the end of the day, they just desire to be like God. And the ironic thing is, God has made us in his image. He's made us to create. He was the one that gave them that gift to be able to create something nearly out of nothing. Only he can create something out of nothing, but he gave them that creativity. Only God can do that. God also put in them a desire, uh, or he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And yet they resisted that, and they had the desire to stay still, stay in one spot. They even said, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Why would they be afraid of that? Well, they weren't really afraid. They were just straight up disobedient. Let's go to Genesis 1, 27 and 28 and see that first command. And you know, I've heard people make provisions for the people at Babel before. There was a, a pastor, really educated pastor, who was down in Nicaragua, um, debating with us a little bit and he was talking about how they didn't have the written law at that time and so they couldn't have known not to do the things that they were doing but we, as you can imagine I see it quite differently <laughs> the scriptures were passed down orally even to the point of Moses so the people at the Tower of Babel there were, there were eventual Hebrew speakers there who passed it down to Moses so it's been recorded and passed down orally all along. So they did have the creation narrative. And right here in the creation, it says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God had already told them to be fruitful and multiply. And we often talk about that command, especially carried over into the New Testament, being fruitful and multiply. But sometimes we neglect the rest of it, that we're to take dominion, that we're to subdue it. And this is important because God had delegated that authority to us, to mankind. He had given them some authority. It's borrowed. But they were like agents, or some people might call them viceroys of the kingship of God. God set 
in these original humans, not only his image and his likeness, but his mission and his task, which is to rule over all. So this, this brings us to uh, one of the main features of the story, which is, which is the language. We talked about what they were trying to do with their hands, build a city, build a tower within. But the underlying motive is what was going on in their heart. It's really a heart issue uh, that's at the center of this. Let's go back to Genesis 11 again. It says, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to settle there. They wanted to stay together. Uh, But they didn't want to fill the earth. God implanted in them his image and his mission. So we can see out of this uh, a heart problem on mankind. They weren't reflecting the image of God. They weren't wanting to do the things that God had called them to do. But we can also see some of God's nature, some of his character. Our hearts aren't all that different from theirs, if we, if we really think about it, too. Like, we've never built a tower, <laughs> probably. I don't think there's anyone in here who probably has done that. And we haven't all shared a language, so we kind of can't relate on that front. But think about how we have this tendency to take what God's given us and see it as our own blessing, to keep it to ourselves. About how even when he gives us like a specific assignment, a ministry assignment, a a task, a responsibility, how immediately we turn that into a checklist. How prone to religion we are. He offers a relationship to us, and we take the spiritual disciplines, for example, and turn them into a checklist. How can I work my way up to heaven? That's a tower. The, the type of tower they were trying to build, they called them ziggurats. And there were these huge multi-tiered like steps that would go up into heaven. And that was the whole concept. They were trying to build their way to God. And God's saying, no, my name's going to be great on heaven and earth. The earth will be filled and it will be done my way. But he comes down to meet us. So even in this judgment, and this is a judgment, we see his mercy. We see his kindness. Because by now we've already seen like the flood. We've seen the garden, the fall. Like He could do the flood again. He promised not to. But here God, God uses this judgment, dispersion of languages as a kindness to not do away with humanity. And it's, it's different from the fall. All the other effects of the fall, we see sin, and we, we can point immediately back to the fall. But when we see languages, we can't really do that. We live in a broken world. We know that there's a language barrier, but what's going on there? Like, there's something unique about it. It's got part of God's plan. He's scattering them here, but soon he'll be gathering them using that same grace, that same mercy that he's extended by dispersing them. So God is a sent God. He sent Jesus. First he sent 
Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And then he sent them into the world, and then he kept sending. He sent Jesus, the Spirit. Jesus sends the Spirit. And he sends us. He sent the apostles. One, one way to see the heart of God in the story is um, there, there's a great quote, and it's, it's about his identity, about who he is as a sent God. It's from uh, a theologian named Kostenberg. It says, we have understood the notion of mission as intimately bound up with God's saving plan that moves from creation to new creation and as framing the entire story of Scripture. It has to do with God's salvation reaching to the ends of the earth, that is, his gracious movement in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rescue a desperately needy world that is in rebellion against him and stands under his righteous judgment. Clearly, the notion of sinning is central to any treatment of Uh, of mission. The Lord of the Scriptures is a missionary God who reaches out to the lost and sends his servants, and particularly his beloved Son, to achieve his gracious purposes of salvation. This is what he's implanted into us, into his creation, this part of him. Another writer, Bradley Bill, summarizes it even more clearly. He says, God, out of the overflow of his character, is a sender. We then, by nature, are sent. The Imago Dei, or the image of God, makes this identity pulse in our veins. The Missio Dei, or the mission of God, moves us to get on our feet and go. So that's why we go. We're sent. We're sent out by God. And if looking at theologians and authors aren't enough, let's look at what Paul says about it. He's in the middle of a sermon back here in Acts 17. And he does a little exposition of this for us, too showing us God's sentness and his purposes in it. Acts 17, 26 through 27. It says, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they may reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Our God is a rescuing God. He's a missionary God, but that's only part of who he is. We see that he has all these many attributes, and one of them is the sentness. This pops out at us in, in, this, uh, in this story. And I can, I can tell you... That, when it comes to languages, there's, it's easy to see all the differences and the diversity. In fact, you probably know people that live like across the bayou or one city over that sound a little bit different than you. Uh, we know of a people group uh, that we visited in East Asia. Uh, one of the ones that we're primarily focused on, we had a gospel resources in one of the languages and we were testing it in different communities because dialects are so strong. We let one community hear it in one province because they're spread out over two provinces across this mountain range. And they say, oh yeah, that's, that's them over on that side. We said, okay. So we went to that community and they said, yeah, that's, way, that's back opposite direction. That's southwest of here and the other mountain range that we never got to visit. So there could be four dialects. We know of at least three. And we said, do you understand anything on this one? And they said, 
No, but maybe it's just the strange names because they're here in the story from creation to Christ and they're here in all these new names, Adam, Eve, Noah, Flood, uh, like a lot of new material coming at them. So they listen and they listen and they say, no, it's unintelligible to us. Like we can hear the accent. We know it's from them, but it's unintelligible. Like we, we, it's like gibberish. So then we go to a third location and they say, yeah, we can take you to a person who recorded this. It's amazing what God has done in dispersing the languages and also what he's done in putting little pictures of himself, little, like, little glimmers of his glory within each culture and each language. That's that uniqueness of this, of this gift. The gift of speech is... And communication is clear throughout Scripture that it is a gift. God starts out the story by speaking. Jesus is called the Word. Uh, God blesses by speaking over his people through his prophets to the people who then go back to his written word that was spoken to once in the past. And it just keeps going, speaking, speaking, speaking. We are sent with a message, too. We, too, have a message. We have the gift of communication. But there is a reality today that many of those groups that were dispersed have continued to disperse. There are thousands of languages today that have not heard the gospel. Those speakers have no opportunity in their lifetime of hearing the good news of Jesus. Some people think, well, maybe in a trade language. Maybe, you know, if they speak Mandarin, then surely they'll be able to do that. Well... What a lot of people don't understand is that trade languages are often used to oppress minority groups, these smaller languages. So they have no interest in speaking that outside of getting a job and getting on in life. Not only that, but what would they look for? Say they have a spiritual hunger, what would they go online and look for? Where do you start? It really starts with God's messengers, his sent ones. So the task today before us is pretty difficult for church planners, for cross-cultural workers. It's going to take learning at least one trade language just to get into the country to be able to operate. Most of the places where the unreached live in the 1040 window, which is the Middle East, China, India, and kind of draw a little loop down there and get Indonesia in there too. There's, There's a large portion of the world who still haven't heard And most of those places also have policies and governments who are not open to the gospel. So these workers will have to go in and get a job. To get a job, you've got to be proficient in that first language. Then to get from that language to the next one, to be able to share the gospel in the mother tongue of the people you're going to, take some work. Most of these languages have no alphabet. The four that we've been looking at have no written language at all. It's just passed down orally. Some of these, excuse me, some of these languages are dying, which has to be taken into consideration because this work can take up to 20 years or more. So you don't want to invest 20 years of your life and still not be able to present the gospel to the following generation who doesn't use that language. So it's quite an involved work. But God's given us his spirit for that work. 
we saw a bad example of God's people unifying and him having to divide them, him, him choosing to divide them. Let's look at a good example in Acts 2 of how God is stepping into this again. In this second scene, this is the one maybe some of you were expecting on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, just a few things before we read it, Acts 2, 1 through 13. Uh, we won't sidetrack off into Pentecostalism. We're just strictly talking about the day of Pentecost, Pentecost right now. <laughs> so Pentecost derived from 50 days, 50 days after Jesus is resurrected. Um, and we're going we're gonna to look at this in its context, not only for the early church, the birth of the early church, but we're going to trace it back and see how it's kind of a bookend to Babel and how God is still at work just the way it was here in sending cross-cultural workers today to the unreached and involving churches like you. It's not all about just those who are sent, but those who are sending Acts 2, 1 through 13 says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues, as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. Now there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all, the, uh, excuse me, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And who is it that, that we each hear them? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites? and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongue of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were jeering and saying, they are full of sweet wine. What a story, you know. It, again, we might go back to kind of childhood pictures and not really put ourselves in this story, but think about an upper room, think about a violent rushing wind, what that must have sounded like. Think about fire, but try to maybe don't use the word tongues <laughs> because that's a little bit confusing. I recently heard a friend of mine talk about how he was so confused about tongues throughout all of scripture because he imagined this red thing that flops out of your mouth <laughs> every time he read it. And it's a confusing translation, but tongues, or you could just say flames. They were resting flames or licking above their, above their forehead. What, what were those images to the children of Israel? The wind would have been like a pillar, I mean, would have been like a cloud that led them during the day. The, the fire would have been like a pillar of fire by night. And God was seeing that 
even though they had been wandering, this time not for 40 years, but for ages. Many of them had even given up hope that God was leading them, that the Spirit no longer resides in this place over the covenant, over the Ark of the Covenant, over a physical tabernacle. It rests in people, on people. Now he's using not just the whole nation to present his message, but he's using them to present the message to all peoples, those who had been spread out, those who had been dispersed. And this is the age we live in. God is still today calling us to this work. He's given us the message. He's given us himself, not only in his rescuing, his redeeming on the cross and the resurrection, but in giving us his very spirit. Jesus said, so as the Father sent me, now I send you. That message was to the disciples who made disciples, who made disciples, like us. Now, those we think the disciples were perfect and they did this on their own, you know, this is not really about the acts of the apostles. It's about the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. So we talked about Acts 1-8 earlier. Go to Acts 8-1, and we'll see that they weren't exactly obedient to what God was calling them to do. He was telling them, to go to Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And for, from the Holy Spirit coming down in Pentecost, chapter 2, all the way to chapter 8, they pretty much stuck still, kind of like the people at Babel. But chapter 8, verse 1, kind of flips 1-8 on its head. It says, Saul agreed with putting him to death, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter the house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. And we know the story of Saul later on, but right there we see that it was persecution that the Spirit used to push them out into obedience, what he had originally already told them to do. You, st- you wait here in Jerusalem for a while. When my spirits come upon you, then you'll go, you'll go to all these places. It's not a greater priority on Jerusalem and Judea. It's, it's and. It's not and then. It's not like build the church up to a point, then go there and build the church up to a point. It's go and do this work simultaneously because my spirit is at work through you doing it. So what God had done at Babel in dispersing the people from a tower, now in the upper room, he comes down and begins to gather his people. And they try to explain it away. Like maybe it's alcohol consumption. Right. (laughs) They drunk alcohol and now they can suddenly speak languages they never learned. But it says, it also says that some were amazed and astonished. And they saw what God was up to. In fact, the large majority came to, came to know Christ. We see how these two stories fit together. Uh, but, but what about us? We're, we're living in this stage, uh, this age. Not all of us are going to go to unreached people groups. 
there's a number of things we can do. Uh, we can pray, intentional prayer. You can download an app called Unreached of the Day, or you can go to a website called joshuaproject.net. Unreached of the Day will give you a picture of a people group every day, like one, one face so that you can have a face to pray for. And they'll give you a few facts about where they live, what their major needs are, and you can pray for them. You can also call in every Wednesday. We have a prayer. Uh, it's by video or call. And we pray for one, usually one unreached people group and some families that have been sent there. Feels, feels a little bit like Pentecost. <laughs> um, so you can pray, but you also live out your sin identity here where God has sent you for now. And it may be that he's preparing you to send out grandkids and children and maybe even some of you. But even still, we should live out our sin identity here. We should be proclaiming the message of Christ here. I highly recommend getting the book uh, called The Sending Church Defined by Bradley Bell especially leaders here, I highly recommend it. It's a little pink booklet, really. It's really short. Um, it's helped us at the Crossing and several other churches I know begin to ask God how we make this part of our DNA. If this is part of who you are, ascending God, sending us, how do we become a sending church? And naturally, that's not going to look the same for every church. So it, it helps us walk through that. I'm just going to read a, a quote from there. I might have to read it a few times. It's, pretty, it's a real good run-on sentence for you, but it's pretty meaty. It says, A sinning church is a local community of Christ followers who have made a covenant together to be prayerful, deliberate, and proactive in developing, commissioning, and sending their own members, both locally and globally, often in partnership with other churches or agencies, and continuing to encourage, support, and advocate for them while making disciples cross-culturally upon their return. There's a lot of verbs in there. Let me, let me read it one more time for you. Ascending Church is a local community of Christ followers who have made a covenant together to be prayerful, deliberate, and proactive in developing, commissioning, and sending their own members, both locally and globally often in partnership with other churches or agencies and continuing to encourage, support, and advocate for them while making disciples cross-culturally and upon their return. One of the best ways to support the missionaries that you're already connected to uh, is to have a clear vision of what it is that beats in God's heart. What's a priority for God? And I think we've seen this morning, and you'll continue to see as we close, the, the emphasis on languages that God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is right after the story of Babel, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. You are probably tired of me saying that particular passage. But it's so important. It, John Stott calls it the hinge on which the entire Bible because from here, through, 
into uh, the New Testament, we see this happening. We see all the families of the earth being blessed. And where they're failed to be used that way, the children of Israel, judgment comes. And then there's usually a period of a revival and then judgment. Revival and judgment. And every time we see the people of God failing to recognize their sentence, they start to take the blessings, they start to hoard them to themselves, and they forget that they were blessed to be a blessing. I don't see, in, in Alls Chapel, I don't see y'all, you know, using resources to build your own little personal kingdoms like the people at Babel. I don't see that at all. I see, actually, a generous church. What I want to call you to examine is, individually, are you hanging on to those blessings? Are you living out your sentence as Christ's ambassador? Matthew 24, 14 says, And my gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We read earlier in Acts 17 where Paul said nationalities. Nations, nationalities, peoples. This is not really geopolitical states. These are The Greek word is ethne, and it's more connected with people groups, which we would call, also call language groups. So it's just not cultural distinctions, it's also linguistic distinctions. And God tells us, Jesus tells us that the task is not finished. Like we've talked about that this morning. There's over 1,600 languages that have not a single word of Scripture, not even an audio form for them. Nothing translated in their mother tongue. Nothing. So the job's not finished. I know we are nearing the end. So what's going to be required of us is to be about the Father's business, to get busy being sent locally and globally. Let's look at our very last scene. This is what we have to look forward to on that day when he does come. If, if ever anyone begins to tell you they have an idea of when Christ is coming back, they don't. <laughs> but you can see the signs. But you can also see the need. The need that all these people groups be reached. And the promise of Jesus to return after that's happened. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the scene we have to look forward to. The, the 24-hour worship service. All of life is worship, right? Not just music and singing. Not just our words, but 
language is a major part of it. We get to proclaim the message of God. We get to proclaim his goodness. And we do it, yes, in word and deed. But will you be around that throne worshiping Jesus? Maybe you've heard the gospel over and over and over. And maybe you've thought that the gospel was just for you. It's come to you because he loves you, of course. But it's also for his glory. In fact, it's more about his glory than his love for you as an individual. He gets glory from your worship. When you are brought into the family of God, you also are enlisted into an army. And I apologize if no one's told you that before, but it's true. Jesus calls us to come and die, to follow him, to count the cost when we follow him, to know that it's not going to be easy, we will be faced with suffering, but to join him in his mission to gather some from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. This takes place in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city, the city that they desired but, but wanted to get to in their own way, around the throne room, so much greater than some tower made with stones, dried out stones. This is the eternal residence where God will be worshipped. If he's revealing himself to you today, I just urge you to, to pray, to begin worshipping him now. It doesn't have to be super complicated. When he reveals himself to you, you worship him. You see your heart condition. You see your need for a savior. If you do know Christ and are known by Christ, I invite you, just as he invites you, and it dwells you for this purpose and empowers you for this purpose, to join him. Join him in living out this sin identity. Let's come together as they did at Babel, but instead of this time proclaiming for ourselves the name, the tower, the city, the glory, let's say, let's make God a name. In other words, let's give him the glory that he's due. Let's build for him a city and be a representation of his kingly rule. Let's bring him worship from every tribe, every tongue, every language group, every family, so that worship will be heard all over the earth and around the throne. For our God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is worthy of all glory, dominion, honor, power, and praise. May the slain lame of Jesus receive for himself the reward of his suffering.